You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hi, I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Today, NSLT is all about climate change, undeniably a national security threat of existential proportions, and what legal authorities are at the disposal of the president. Joining me today are members of the committee, Brian Egan, a partner at Skadden Arps and a former everything in Washington, D.C., from general counsel of Treasury to top lawyer at state. And of course, also today, one of the world's leading academic minds on national security and military operations in the domestic theater, Syracuse law professor Bill Banks. Hi, guys. Thanks for coming in. Great to be here. Thanks, Lisa. All right, Brian, let's set the stage here. Temperatures have topped over 100 degrees or near to it in Europe now for well over a month. The streets have literally become unstable. The Regal Mont Blanc is melting. And the largest glacier in Norway, which has a lot of hydroelectric power, by the way, is disappearing. And this is all happening against the backdrop of Putin's war on Ukraine, which is beginning to look like he has no intent to stop at the Donbass. And this has prompted the most aggressive sanctions in the United States and globally on his principal exports, which are crude and liquid natural gas. So we're also experiencing heat in the Central Plains and Midwestern United States. And of course, in California's Central Valley, which grows almost as much rice as the whole of China, just for some perspective. This all has the potential, along with the war in Ukraine, to threaten the global food supply. And of course, the Supreme Court has now kneecapped the EPA and the midterms loom. Wow, it's dystopia right here. So the president held a press conference yesterday in Massachusetts, where I think we were all expecting the announcement of some sort of executive order. But he did say that, you know, climate is a threat. It's an emergency. But he stopped short of what, Brian? Well, he stopped short of declaring a national emergency, which is something that we lawyers listen for. One of the things that has been the subject of some speculation by members of Congress and the press and social media is, will President Biden invoke his authorities under a law called the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, or IEPA, which he's done in the context of some of the other crises you've just mentioned, Lisa, including the Ukraine crises. He didn't do that yesterday. Doesn't mean he will never do that. And we can talk about what that would and wouldn't empower the president to do next. It would be an unusual use of the authority in some ways, but in other ways, there's some kind of interesting things that he might be able to do if he were to invoke this. I think we've talked about this before, Brian. I mean, what is the definition of an international economic emergency if we're not experiencing that right at this moment? Yeah, fair question. So IEPA, a statute that was passed in the 70s, gives the president economic authorities if he declares the existence of a national emergency that is based in whole or in substantial part outside the United States. The president has a lot of discretion to decide what those emergencies might be. And uh, over the last 40 years, I think 40 or 50 emergencies have been declared, some of them on things as distant from the United States as the situation in Zimbabwe under the Robert Mugabe regime, for example. So I think there would be some precedent for declaring an emergency here, and I don't think it's likely that it could be challenged. Now, the authorities that could be used if the president were to declare an emergency are also pretty considerable, but most people think about those authorities as sanctions. So an individual 
freezing sanctions against political leadership, against companies, against individuals who are causing the national emergency. Sometimes sanctions against countries, but sanctions is the general framework for thinking about IEPA, the use of IEPA, and the declaration of a national emergency under IEPA. And he's been using that very liberally, you know, largely, I think, with public support in the situation in Ukraine, because, you know, obviously we want to do what we can do to neutralize Putin, but that's more of an international sort of, I feel like that fits more squarely within IEPA. But I mean, domestically, do you have any thoughts on what he could do in this situation using any of his sort of emergency national security authorities that are available? Sure. Well, let's let's start with IEPA. And this might be an area where Bill has some thoughts as well. Kind of the most logical use of IEPA or the one that would be most in keeping with how IEPA has been used in the past would be for the president to declare an emergency with the target of the emergency being those parties who are threatening our global climate, and then to impose sanctions against parties around the world who are taking actions that threaten or are exacerbating climate change. These would be asset freezes. Uh, we've heard a lot about this in the context of Russia. He could you know, target U.S. bank accounts. He could target other U.S. real property for freezing. And he could develop a list. Uh, a lot of people say that one of the key benefits of sanctions is just publicizing those who are responsible for whatever the issue is. He could make a public list of the parties who have been responsible for exacerbating climate change. So that, that would be one. And another thing that he could do is he could actually impose trade restrictions on goods that are the product of activities that are exacerbating climate change. So some people have talked about wood or products made from wood in the Amazon region that is leading to deforestation or other things. Uh, he could be you know, targeting just specific types of trade under IEPA. He could take actions to preserve assets in the United States. That's been another way that IEPA has been used in the past. So there are many ways that he could use IEPA, but it's, a, it's generally a punitive measure. You know, you're identifying those who are responsible for the national emergency, and you're taking actions to stop them or to hopefully change their behavior. Yeah, I, that's an interesting thing because you mentioned the Amazon, and we've also been talking about the deep seabed and its significant role in things like carbon capture and carbon neutralization, which, you know, they may have, obviously the Amazon has an identified known sort of role in preventing the climate from getting any warmer. And under Bolsonaro in particular, it's definitely being basically strafed <laughs> miles of it in places. So yeah, that's an interesting thing. So a name and shame. And then we're faced with a challenge, of course, in doing that. We always come back to one thing, which is the beneficial ownership. So if, for example, he decided to go after these various non-meritorious people known as oligarchs who basically have taken the sort of wealth that should be that of the Russian people, if he went to find all of their penthouse apartments in Manhattan, that might be a bit of a challenge, or would it? Yeah, that is a perpetual challenge. That's a great way to say it. Yeah, once you name and shame and you identify people, you being the people of the United States who are holding these assets or who are working with people are obligated to identify assets and to freeze them. And that can be tricky, particularly when there are you know layers of companies between the people being sanctioned and the people who ultimately own the assets in question. So that is one of the issues. And you know, when thinking about things like product-based sanctions. That can also be tricky uh, in that area. You know, how do you know if the product that you're purchasing from Ikea 
is made sourced from wood, that may be a problem. That can also lead to some hard supply chain issues. Right. Well, IKEA says that it's responsibly sourced. What they don't say is what that means. So exactly. And I'm, exactly. <laughs> and I'm wondering if the you know the rare yew trees are really what's sold at IKEA, but and if the furniture, <laughs> if the furniture lobby, and there is a furniture lobby, I think they have a building somewhere, is quite as powerful as that of the fossil fuels. So I, I guess their argument Fair enough. Be, right, <laughs> that might be a little bit more a theater than have the efficacy one would really hope. You know, we really are looking at a situation that's just utterly menacing. And of course, Bill, there's been a lot of speculation in Reuters, in particular, the New York Times and some of the Financial Times articles about whether or not the president could evoke the Defense Production Act or in some way use the military. I mean, is that really opposite? Does that really fit in this situation? Is that the right thing? What could he do? What sort of legal scrutiny would that subject his action to? And given where we are with the court right now, where could this go? I think that's a very good question. And I think Brian's exactly right when he says that IEPA has some capabilities here. But as he indicated, and as the statute says, the first word in the statute is international. So what can the president do domestically? We might step back for just a minute and and talk about sort of the ABCs, the civics here. We all know that the president's principal duty is to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. That's a quote from the text of Article 2. And for a long time, presidents have taken license with that language in the Constitution and used the executive order device to make policy. But they do so usually pursuant to express delegated authority from Congress and or a broader pitched consideration of Article 2 authorities of the president. Famously and historically, President Harry Truman sought to rely on that authority to nationalize the nation's steel industry in the midst or early stages of the Korean War. And he was challenged by the the industry, and he lost in the United States Supreme Court by a vote of six to three. Coincidentally, I think, when you said at the beginning of the cast that the Supreme Court kneecapped the EPA a few weeks ago in a case called West Virginia versus EPA, the vote there was also six to three and a defeat for the administration. This was not a Biden administration policy that the court uh, invalidated in the West Virginia case. It was an EPA rule of some years standing that had been making its way through the courts. Broader point is that part of the reason the Biden administration hesitated, I think, and as Brian described it, to not declare a national emergency is that they're trying to decide, partly through a careful legal analysis, what steps they could take that would survive review. And the answer isn't clear. I don't think the Defense Production Act is especially useful here. But going back to the parts of government that have the really direct and primary responsibility for our human environment, EPA probably the best example, there are a lot of things the agency could do at the behest of the administration pursuant to executive order that could find statutory authority for their actions. So the president wouldn't be acting solely on the basis of its constitutional authority to take care, but he'd be acting pursuant to delegated authority that Congress gave to the EPA some time ago. The problem is now, the hook, if you will, is this thing called the Major Programs Doctrine that the Supreme Court has announced in four or five, six decisions over the last decade or so, and that they voiced very loudly 
in the West Virginia EPA case of a few weeks ago. The, the major programs doctrine is a judicial construct. It's not written in law anywhere. The court effectively made it up. And what it says is that if Congress really wants to play hardball, if they want the agency to do certain dramatic things, take bold steps, they need to say so. They, the Congress, needs to say so in so many words, rather than in broad, open-ended language that Congress usually uses when it chooses to create broad programmatic aspirations in something like the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act. So there's a battlefield here, and it's ironic. I think that the battlefield now is in the judiciary. The questions here are policy questions, and what are we willing to sacrifice? What steps are we willing to take to protect all of us and to protect our planet? It's not a question that unelected, life-tenured judges should be in the first line of answering. And so I think that the administration is worried that if it takes bold steps to combat climate change through domestic initiatives, through agencies like the EPA or OSHA or other agencies that have broad domestic authority, they'll certainly be challenged. They'll be challenged on the very day that the step is taken. And with the kind of speed that, that now the courts have shown in getting things before the Supreme Court on its shadow docket, they could get smacked down pretty darn quick. That wasn't sunny or optimistic. <laughs> And, you know, I, this is going to be interesting to watch because it's going to be interesting to see what's happening in Europe, where I think the EU has oftentimes until recently had as much trouble coming to an agreement on what to do to address any major problem as Congress has. So do you have any predictions, either one of you, for what is on the horizon here? I think the Biden administration will, will take some significant steps. I think they'll rely on some existing authorities that the agencies have to try to do part of what they might have done had Senator Manchin uh, decided to go along with the, the bill that he pulled away from recently. So EPA has tools. They can get tougher on automobiles. They can get tougher on new pollution sources. They can work on the trading mechanisms that they've used for polluters over the years with mixed success. That's just an example. So I, I don't think the administration is going to retreat. I think they're trying to figure out you know, where, how they can best play their cards. Yeah, I completely agree. And that goes on the international front as well. I think they're uh, going to continue to seek ways to engage, including through the Paris process. This is not just a U.S.-based problem, although we have... We can do a lot ourselves to address climate change. It is an area where we do need to talk to China. We need to partner with China. I think that's just the reality of how our planet works, not just China, but Brazil, uh, India, and, and other uh, economies. On the EU side, I think there's some additional possibility potentially for joint action. You know, going back to AIPA, if we're talking about a program, a restrictive program of identifying parties that's an area where the U.S. and the EU have done a lot together in the context of Russia, perhaps more coordinated action and really more aggressive action on the EU side than we've seen in any other kind of sanctions program. So there are limits to what sanctions can accomplish in this space for sure, uh, but that may be another area where you could see some partnership between the U.S. and the Europeans and others, the U.K., the Canadians, et cetera. Yeah, that's interesting. I do think, um, you know, Senator Cassidy spoke some time ago on because, you know, he's obviously got the district that includes all the oil workers down in Louisiana. 
and I, I believe, and I don't want to misquote him here, but he said something like it's change is hard for people. And while they emotionally support the idea of changing, for example, off of fossil fuels, it's pretty cold comfort to them if they think about just not having a job, you know, they're coming to a full stop. So I like the idea of sort of a, an easy move, building new technologies, limiting the remanufacture of things that we know are known pollutants. But we are facing the midterms, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens, because this whole idea of the unitary executive, I think, is misunderstands the role that Congress plays and the courts play in sort of balancing our government right now and how no one man can really make a decision that could affect that kind of change long term. No disagreement there. Well, I am really glad you guys came in today for this short podcast on this climate issue that we're facing right now and probably will for the rest of our lives. It's always good to have you. And to our listeners, I just want to say thanks for tuning in to NSLT. We hope that you'll share this episode with a friend, like it on whatever listening platform you use write a review, and certainly discuss these issues over coffee, especially young lawyers out there. You are the future. The news of today is going to affect the national security laws of tomorrow. You're part of future solutions. And given climate issues, I might suggest that this time you have an iced coffee. Remember to subscribe to NSLT on your listening platform of choice and feel free to send us comments and feedback. We like that. You can find us on Twitter at ABANETSEC, or you can send us an email at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. Remember, everybody on this podcast is here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any institution, agency, or firm. We'll see you next time. Thanks for being here. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.